I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. All right, wonderful humans, welcome back to Nova Conversations podcast. I'm Laura Marsh, and in this episode, I interview Brooke Mitchell-Norman. Well, actually, she kind of interviews me um, because we were doing a co-interview for my podcast and for her podcast, which is called Rewildology. So go check out the Rewildology podcast. Be sure to follow them. Brooke and I met through Instagram, I guess, and we just became quick friends because of our parallel lives. Now, while I studied birds, she studied big cats. She went and did a lot of work with big cats and has traveled all over the world and now works as a conservation director for The Wild Source, which is an ethical ecotourism company. And I'm trying not to be too jealous that she's getting paid for doing the work that I would like to be doing as well. And I'm sure most of you listening would just love to be doing this work as well. But it's so interesting because where... We both landed was the fact that conservation travel is really good for wildlife and conservation and to protect our environment. And so that's where we are kind of living our parallel lives and journeys right now is to invest money in this idea that conservation travel done right is really beneficial. But yeah, Brooke is just a gem. I've loved talking with her and connecting with her. And a few notes about this episode. In the beginning, I kind of blab a lot about the Texas A&M Job Board, which is, in the United States at least, one of the most popular job boards. And the reason I go off on it is because I um, think it's it could be updated much better. And I actually tried to do that and just ran out of money. <laughs> so if you want to work on that project with me, let me know. If you are from Texas A&M and you have thoughts... Yeah, reach out, novaconservationtravel at gmail.com. I'd be curious to talk. And then the other thing is that I don't exactly address one of her questions, which is how to end exploitation. I kind of go more off into diversity, but that's okay because that's important too. Here are my thoughts on fixing exploitation in our industry. First, we really need to work on holding organizations accountable and I have started to do that. I have a review site. If you go to novaconservation.com and click on resources, you can add reviews for conservation organizations across the world. It is a bare bones website, but it's a start. So we need to hold them accountable and make sure that um, organizations are aware that we are watching and we know if you're exploiting us. Second, there needs to be better governmental regulations and oversight which I know is difficult when working internationally. You can have one good rule set up in the United States or in the UK saying unpaid internships are unacceptable and here's how we define an internship and here's what we need to do about it. But crossing borders, crossing country borders, those rules may not stay in place. So that's a challenge that we'll need to overcome. Third, we could clearly define what an internship is versus an apprenticeship versus a training, versus a class. 
all of those definitions are really fluid right now and hard to get on the same page when traveling again in between countries, though there's just no regulation and oversight. And then ultimately we could end unpaid internships that just exploit an individual for work. Not talking about the internships, quote unquote, that are a training or some kind of learning experience, but the ones that are clearly exploitative. We need to work together. We can write more blogs and articles, opinion pieces, submit them to journals and bulletins and peer-reviewed resources. Just educating others and bringing awareness to this is huge. I'm actually doing a deep dive right now into the scientific and peer-reviewed literature about ways to bring about this change and to learn more about what the research says behind some of this. So I'm excited to report back and see what I find. Again, feel free to reach out on social media, email me. If you want to be interviewed or you know someone who has a story about some of these exploitative practices, let me know. I'd love to talk to them. On the other hand, if you are someone from a nonprofit and want to share your side of the story, let me know that too. I plan on doing that a little bit more as well in the coming months. And finally, we do have a Patreon page because this is work and um, I am doing this all because I find it very interesting and I think it's important. But if you want to support me, if you can support me, please go to patreon.com slash novaconservation. We have a bunch of fun new levels up. You can be anywhere from the bottom level of a primary producer at $3 a month all the way up to the quaternary consumer, which is like an apex predator, like a hawk or a shark or something like that. And you get a t-shirt with that level. So go check that out. And I really just appreciate and thank you so much for your support. We have two patron supporters, Patreon, whatever they're called. So a huge thank you to Brent and Melly for being our supporters. And I'm not going to do it now, but I'm thinking of adding a level in which if you give a certain amount per month, I randomly select a bird that is your bird for life. So... For example, at the beginning of the podcast, I'll read off your name, say thank you, you're at this level, and therefore your bird of life, your life bird is, and then I go onto eBird and click surprise me or randomize, and I come up with your life bird, which I just tried it, and it is a Slady Bunting. So if you donate a certain level, you get your own specialized, hand-selected by NOAA Conservation founder Laura Marsh, your own life bird. Yeah, all that to say, uh, please become a Patreon. Please, I would love uh, extra help to cover the costs and just break even with this. It would be great. Thank you. And now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Brooke Mitchell-Norman. Hi, Laura. (laughs) Hi, Brooke. It's so good to talk with you. I'm so excited about this conversation. Oh my gosh, I am so stoked. So everyone listening, we are doing a dual interview right now. Which Ooh, is going fancy. to be so fun. I actually haven't done one of these yet. In like the oh, six, you haven't? I haven't. In like the 60-some episodes I've released, I haven't done one where we're just chatting with each other. So, yeah, I'm sitting with Laura Marsh, and she is the amazing mind behind Nova Conservation, which is so exciting. And the podcast Nova Con- Converse. Okay. Podcast I know. Nova I- Conversations. Blah, 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 blah. 
And that was a, that was a stupid choice on my end because I say it backwards <laughs> all the time and I get tongue twisted. So it, people hear it, they're like, oh, that's a good play on words. And I'm like, no, it, it was a bad idea. <laughs> Which is the first time I've tried to say them back to back, Nova Conservation and Nova Conversation. Yeah. You gotta think through it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's just, I'm just challenging your brain. Like, that's what we're doing. Yeah, it was a good one. I got tongue-tied, so. <laughs> just pushing the limits. Uh, well, Laura and I have connected on so many different levels about so many things, and mm-hmm. today is going to be amazing because... I don't even know where this conversation is going to go. It's going to be great. But let's just start at square one. Uh, I'm sure that your listeners would also love to hear again, maybe more of your story. And I'm sure we Wattology would love to hear who you are as well. So jump in. Tell us who you are. Okay. Well, I was born. No, um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a marine biologist. Going back to that, I think most young girls especially wanted to be a marine biologist and work with dolphins. I was interested in coral reefs. By the time I got to high school, I thought I would go to college along the coastline. I applied for the University of Miami and thought my life was just going to head in that direction of studying marine biology on the coast, living that lifestyle. Yet, when, (laughs) when you get a scholarship to an, a landlocked state, uh, like Tennessee, which is where I am from, you don't turn it down. It was a really good, <laughs> yeah. and that, honestly, that was the, one of the best decisions I ever made. So, like, I know your your podcast probably isn't about advice or career advice, but I will say, not having student loan debt was huge. And even if it means going to your public university that you don't want to go to because the fee is cheaper, it's worth it. Because I found my tribe, I connected, I got into ecology and wildlife in a totally unique way. And my direction went where I couldn't have imagined. And it was beautiful and wonderful. I fell in love with East Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains, the ecosystems here. There's so many salamanders and and freshwater fish and birds. And that's where I really kind of hung my cap. I love birds. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study. And I ended up going with birds because they're so accessible. They're everywhere. And I call them the gateway drug to conservation because (laughs) if you you can connect someone with a bird, then they start to think about where the bird's going. How does it migrate? How does it find food? If these trees are cut down, what's going to happen to that? And how is it going to raise babies and young? So it's a good stepping stone to get people interested in thinking about wildlife conservation. Very accessible. So that's the direction I chose. I did a lot of like environmental education, the zoo, the aquarium, nature centers, all of that type of stuff. But I really wanted to do field work. And I didn't know the, like Texas A&M job board wasn't on my radar in undergraduate. So that's a very common, are you familiar with Texas A&M job board? Yeah, I used to be on it like every single day of my life for a solid chunk of my career. Right. Right. As most of us are who are trying to kind of get our foot in the door in this field. But all through undergrad, I didn't know it existed. It wasn't until after undergrad. And then, you know, you start to use it and you're looking at these opportunities. And first of all, it's it's a free platform, which is great, but it's also like poorly organized. It's hard to find what you're looking for. The search is not ideal. All sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of things that could be better that in my mind, I'm like, I could see how this 
could be awesome and fixable. So the other issue with Texas A&M Job Board is that there's no vetting process. So a lot of times organizations like exotic cats or exotic cat researchers or sanctuaries that aren't ethical or treat their animals well or conservation focused or digging into the science and the research or re-releasing their animals back into the wild, those types of organizations can be posting on um, this open platform and you can't really sort through and know what's ethical and what's not. And that it's a fine line for sure. But especially when it comes to cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to navigate, especially as an early career conservationist, someone who doesn't have the knowledge and the know-how to sort through all of that. And then there's the issue of, you know, we're all conservationists, we're all biologists, we're working so, so much and getting underpaid. So <laughs> I worked many field jobs after my environmental ed stint. I worked with cerulean warblers. I've worked with yellow-billed cuckoos. I've worked all over the United States. And I remember working one of my jobs at a bird banding lab and thinking I'm getting paid, when the breakdown comes down to it, I'm getting paid $4 an hour. And I have my, I have my master's degree also. I got my master's in all of that too. And I had a kid. Um, well, now I have two. So, so fast forward to doing field jobs, getting a master's, having a baby. And now I'm working this field job. And I'm like, I have years of experience at this point. I'm getting paid $4 an hour. What it, and, and is this the best way to help conservation? Mm. Like, is this with my brain and with my passion, my burning passion to help the planet is banding birds in a swamp the best thing I can do? I don't know. I didn't, it didn't feel like it. So that's when the gear started turning like, okay, what, what can we really do to help conservation most effectively? And yeah, I, <laughs> my journey through, to start Nova Conservation, I, I launched it a few years after that job. My original goal and my original thought is to bring more funds to conservation. We need to bring more money to conservation because if the, the field techs aren't getting paid appropriately, if the biologists doing this research aren't even getting paid, like the principal investigators, the, the graduate students, sometimes the postdocs are even struggling to get paid effectively and they have to get these projects done. So they only have a, a set stipend to get it done based on the grants and the fundraising and the allowance that they're given. And most of these grants doesn't go to field tech work. Most of the grants go to things like equipment and mist nets and uh, generally it's equipment. It's like, oh, the big tags that go on the birds or something like that. A lot of the grants don't cover the overhead. And that's a problem because we're not getting paid what we're worth. We're not getting paid. Uh, <laughs> we're not getting compensated for the hard work that we do. We don't have healthcare. We don't have a union. <laughs> we don't have the ability to say, this job is risking, I, I'm risking my life for this job. And that's scary to me. But because it's biology and because it's field work, it's fun. So I've, you know, I did field work and I thought this is just what you gotta do. You have to kind of buck through it all, like uh, muscle through it, toughen up. And that's fine and that's good. For me, I was able to do that. But what about someone who's disabled? 
What about someone who can't afford to work for free? What if they want to break into the industry and they want to do field work? They have this burning passion to do field work and they can't, they're like, I have my family to take care of. My grandma's sick. I have no support system around me. How on earth are you, how on earth can I be expected to volunteer for years and get to, in order to just get my foot in the door in the industry? It's so unfair. It's so, it's, it's hard. It's, it's really challenging. I gave an entire TED talk about this and I said it a bit more eloquently than I'm saying it now. So (laughs) we can link that and we can, your listeners can go back and listen to it if you want. But the issue is it really leads to a lot of privilege in conservation work. Most conservation workers full-time are come from, are privileged. They come from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, generally white. So it it doesn't lead to this diversity in conservation field work and the conservation industry at all that we see that we we're trying to protect the biodiversity of our planet, but yet there's no diversity in our industry. That's a problem. So that's a huge passion of mine. And I'm hoping that if I start a 501c3 nonprofit, we'll be able to address some of those issues. The other issue too is because there's too many workers and in wildlife, too many people who want to work in wildlife and there's not enough jobs or money to sustain that, that can lead to exploitation in the industry pretty severely. So what I mean by that is there are really good organizations out there, but there are also organizations that charge a lot of money for conservation experiences or research expeditions that force you to work and pay a fee in order to do that. And you don't know what you're getting. It's not very clear. The expectations aren't aren't clear up front. And so you pay a lot of money. uh, And this has happened to people, many people. You pay a lot of money and then you end up working a job. And that is never okay to pay to work a job. Paying to volunteer is different. If you want to give your hard-earned cash and you really want to support a great cause, Excellent. I think there are so many awesome organizations that you can support, but you shouldn't pay to work a job. At, that's a different level. And so we're trying to kind of tease apart those variables and like, what is a job? What is a volunteer position? When is this more acceptable? When is it a little squirrely? What are some red flags to look out for? Because honestly, there are so many great conservation organizations, and, but they're not all the same. They're not all the same on those levels. So we're trying to find the most ethical, the most give back ones, the ones that support local communities, the ones that support indigenous cultures, the ones that support the most research focused conservation efforts and promote them and kind of, you know, encourage people not to go in the other direction uh, just because it's the first thing that pops up on a Google ad. Oh, conservation expedition. I'll go with that. So that's, that's what we're doing in a nutshell through the nonprofit side of thing. And th- those are the discussions I'm having on my Nova Conservation, or see, I did it, <laughs> Nova, Nova Conversations podcast. And then I'll stop talking because I'm talking a lot, but uh, <laughs> I want to ask you a question next. Okay. So, so um, yeah. So what do you think about that? Because I, I mean, I'm on, I'm on social media. I'm interacting with people. I have my thoughts. I'm trying to get an even contribution of like people who are in nonprofits who can't afford to pay 
their employees and they can barely afford to pay themselves. Like I get that too. And that's such a hard struggle. But then I also see like the biologists who are like, we're not getting money either. And there are, our industry is suffering because of it. So there's just no money to go around. So we need to find more funds. That's just where I keep settling back into. We need to find more funds for conservation and we need to have these conversations about this issue in order to find solutions. What do you think? Yes, I completely agree. And I'll just give you some more like personal anecdotes or maybe some personal stories of how I've had the same realization. So I think that most people listening, when you go into the conservation field, you're kind of brainwashed into thinking that for profits are bad and nonprofits are good. And the only way to make real impact is if you're working for a nonprofit. The problem that I've come to find with this thinking, and I did not have my mind changed until I worked for my my first for-profit, was I made so much more impact in that for-profit than I feel like I did in my entire career in nonprofits. And the main reason why is because that for that for-profit had a damn good business model. And I think that's what's missing is in the nonprofit sector. So I've done a lot of business studying recently because you know I'm a trained conservation biologist. I have multiple degrees in the field. But the problem with our field, and actually I think pretty much most degrees nowadays, is you don't learn how to run a business. You don't learn anything about an actual business model. And I think that that gets lost in our field because we all have so much passion. And we're the only reason why we're in this is because we're passionate. Let's be honest, Mm -hmm. because there's really no other reason why to do this. It is emotionally draining. It is exhausting, just like you said. There's a lot of exploitation. There's almost no money to be had. So who in their right mind would voluntarily be in this field? And I think the biggest problem is since we're not properly trained in how to run a business, people don't put two and two together that nonprofit is a business type. It is a business model. So yeah, and I think that's one of the big reasons why there is not enough money in our field is because so many of these nonprofits are started out of passion, but not out of a sound business mind. And Mm. again, it took me leaving the nonprofit world because I do have really high student loan debt. I really wish somebody would have told me that exact same thing. I mean, yeah, I definitely had a different story and like when it came to that, but if I would have known now, like if I would have known then what I know now, I would have done everything completely differently. Mm-hmm. I don't regret my degrees. I don't regret my time in school, but I would have done it so differently. I probably would have taken less unpaid internships. I would have stretched out my education to be able to pay my education as I was going because I have so much student loan debt now. But yeah, there's like so many of these just things that we aren't taught as we're starting our career. It's it's just like, oh, you just need, you need to have that degree. You need to have that field work because that's the only way you're going to get into the field. But then no one coaches us on how to financially make that happen. Mm -hmm. So Yes, even though I am a white woman, I did not grow up in money. Like I grew grew up in a, my family did everything they could. Like, do not get me wrong. I'm, the sacrifices my parents made make me want to cry. Like now that I know better, 
like that I've seen so much of the world, just seeing what my parents had to do to give us girls the life that we did have, like, I'm like, how can I be a parent? Because I can't even like compare to what they did. And just how, because I'm from like rural Southern Ohio. It's like what Dave Chappelle's called like the dusty white people. That is literally like where I'm from. It's like the <laughs> part of the US like, is, is totally forgotten. And so like, I didn't have the money. I had to borrow all the things. And yeah. so, and I didn't have any of this proper training on, on how to run a business. And so I, I needed to get a higher paying job. I'm like, I can't do this low paying. Oh my God. My first zookeeping job. So I was a zookeeper for a while. Okay. Uh, Cause I thought that that's what I was going to do was be a zookeeper. The first time I landed a $12 an hour job, I thought I had made it. I was like 24,000 a year. Oh my God. I have made it. No, are you serious? That is nothing. But that was still so much higher than any of the other jobs that I had. And by this point, so by the time I landed my first $12 an hour job, I was working on my master's. So I already had a very expensive, high recognized degree from a big school. And at this point, how much debt was I already in? Uh, at least 60K in student loan debt by this point. And then I went to go get my master's because that's what you do. Because um, <laughs> I wanted to make a better paying job. But yeah. So with all of that combined, I'm like, I'm not making my bills. When we moved to Denver and all of this, who my boyfriend is now my husband. And that's when I found sustainable travel and the power of sustainable travel for conservation through my master's work. And one of the top conservation travel companies in the world happens to be here in Colorado. And I'm like, you're going to freaking hire me. I don't know huh? what I got to do. So I applied three times. And in my third application, there was another position coming open that I was way more qualified for. So I actually interviewed for that one. And then that's when I got the job. And I was like, I, until you guys all tell me no, you're going to hire me. And they did. And so that was good. And I was there for almost three years until the pandemic, you know, whatever. But yeah. I love and, that determination. Mm -hmm. That's cool. You're, you're going to hire me. Yes. Yeah. It's like you're going, <laughs> unless you tell me. Brooke, we are never hiring you. You're going to freaking hire me. Mm -hmm. And at this point, because again, I did not come from, from wealth. So you needed a lot of international travel to work at this company. Understandably, I had uh. two trips under my belt at that point, just through my master's. And that was like the biggest thing that I didn't have. So many other people that were applying had like been to 70 countries and all this other stuff. And I'm sure you can imagine what everybody looked like in the office. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, but that was the first time when I finally landed a job there and that my starting role, literally entry level role was the highest pay I had ever received in my life. Yeah. I was like, okay, something's going on here. Yeah. And then also what was really cool, since that company's business model is so strong, a lot of their money is donated to WWF, you know, mm -hmm. big conglomerate. I know everyone has their own feelings about that, but that company, so the Natural Habitat, is the official travel partner of WWF. So if you like go on to one of their trip pages for WWF, you're actually taking a NatHab tour. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they give so much money back to conservation and then every single trip is focused on conservation as well. So yeah. like 
Awesome. Okay, so that is what I needed to see that because I was also so brainwashed that the only way you're going to make real impact is sacrificing your life in a for-profit that doesn't have enough funds to pay anybody. And then I was like, oh, no, that's not the way it works. You just need a really damn good business model. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're a for-profit or non-profit. That's just a way that your taxes are done, essentially, is what that actually means. It doesn't mean that you're not, you don't have a good business model. And it took me so much learning all of these things in order for me to have that realization. If I would have had that realization when I was 22, and I'm, I'm 30 now, if I would have had it when I was 22, graduating undergrad, I mean, who knows what my trajectory would have been after that. I mean, I'm super grateful, of course, for every single thing that I've experienced and gone through. But if I would have known that then, oh, man, I don't. I don't know. That's why I shot it to the rooftop. It's like it just because somebody's a nonprofit doesn't necessarily mean you're not going you're going to make better impact versus a for-profit. It's more of what is the ethos of the company? How is their business model? What is their dedication to like sustainable practices, whatever that business is? And then what is your role in that company and then decide. So uh, right. Yeah. Before Those we were self realization self realizations I've learned over the years. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's really good. Very interesting. Yeah, before we were recording this, we were talking about this because I struggle so much with should Nova Conservation be a nonprofit? I I just feel in my bones like it needs to be because that's what I maybe it's like a brainwash thing. Like that's how I feel I want to present myself to the world as a nonprofit. But literally every person I've talked to, a business advisor, and from a, a tax role, an accounting role, a business advisory role, when I explain my vision to make funds for conservation, they're like, you can do it so much more effectively by being a for-profit. And even as they say for-profit, I'm trying not to cringe, but I- It takes I, a mindset shift. Oh, it does. <laughs> it does. But there's a potential to earn money. And I know in my heart that I don't, want money to whatever like I want to give it all back but I still need to be able to pay yourself and pay the people who are working diligently for you and I think we can do that I'm hoping we can do that through having a more business for-profit model that just gives funds back you just get funds exactly. back and make it super transparent and super clear where your money's going and why we have chosen this nonprofit to support. So for example, at my very first trip is coming up in April. I am so exciting. <laughs> it's just a day long trip, but it, it's, it's locally, I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and um, we have this super cool island. It's an urban island um, in the middle of downtown and it's owned by the Audubon Society. Audubon Society just doesn't have the funds, the local Audubon Society doesn't have the funds to help restore and preserve this island. So we're bringing people out, we're paddling, they're going to see some bird banding in action, we'll do a bird hike and learn about the island and how it's a stopover spot for migratory birds. And then their funds will go directly back into the restoration preservation of that island for as a wildlife preserve an urban wildlife spot. This is so cool. So that's the model that I'm trying to work with. We find nonprofits, we partner with them, and we set up a cool excursion that just brings more funds back to the nonprofits doing the best work, supporting their workers, paying them well, <laughs> paying their interns fairly for the work that they do, 
treating their volunteers with dignity and respect, uh, restoring the connection to local communities. Like it's always, if you're traveling out, you know, I'm from the U.S. So if you're traveling outside of the U.S., that partnership with the local people has to be there. It, you know, there's so much example, there's so many examples of neocolonialism where someone comes into a country like Peru or Belize or something and just says, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're going to make money from the rainforest. We, you have to partner with locals. You have to, it's essential. Um, I almost like would say, yeah, anyone who doesn't res res respect local culture, like that's an absolutely hard no for me. <laughs> not gonna, not gonna happen. So absolutely. yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Well, I, I could ramble on for years, but like also training the locals, like one of the things I want to do, I have so many ideas, Brooke. I, <laughs> ideas are coming on my eyeballs. Oh, oh, my oh all of them. That's going to be a long podcast if we're going to get to all of them, but, oh, <laughs> but, um, but like a one for one, like you pay a fee, to, you know, go, you go on this cool conservation focused expedition, you get to see cool animals, but at the same time, your, your fee also covers a local Peruvian or Brazilian who has a merit-based, need-based desire to learn ecotourism, to learn this ethical way of traveling, and then they get training and support from their, from, like it's just a rediversion of funds. So they get to have that experience without having to pay, and then they can help their local communities through that. Yeah, lots of things going on. Lots Absolutely. of ideas. Absolutely. And I again, do everyone's just like, okay, Brooke, you and Laura are best friends, aren't you? <laughs> I don't shut up about conservation travel. I'm pretty I, sure every single episode I bring it up at least once. And also, we didn't know that when we connected, that like this is, we both have this same vision as a way to huh. bring and fund conservation is through well sustainable well-made travel like we're like <gasps> yeah. we're best friends <laughs> we're yeah we're basically twins like I'm like I yeah I can I can sense that that we will get along very very well yeah <laughs> we already are getting along very exactly very well. and if people who aren't seeing the recording right now we are both blonde blonde hair blue eyes like yeah <laughs> we even look alike <laughs> we even look alike we both have podcasts speaking yeah, of yeah where in the world did your podcast come out of what do you mean like where did it come like, from why, like why like, did what i do was it? your idea yeah what yeah was your idea for it so uh, i think it's like with the ethical portion ethics are so touchy even when i was talking earlier about like you know pay to work versus paying to volunteer when is it okay when is it not i seriously have spent so many hours trying to like like make a flow chart of like, well, if you're this person and then it's okay if you leave here, but if you go to a touristy place, that's not your home country, uh, maybe you should pay, but only if you're from a, a wealthier background, like all of these, there's so many things that go into it. And I, you, it's just not black and white. It's not black and white. At all, no. <laughs> oh, so I tried to have a panel where we discuss it and I didn't moderate it well. I, I I learned a lot through that, but I decided to have individual conversations instead about these things. So we can really go and go into the nuance of when something is more ethical, you know, doing the, the playing devil's advocate with a bunch of different ideas. So some, mm, someone I interviewed cool. recently in the, that episode isn't released basically said, you know, I, I disagree with any form of conservation travel because 
you need to be in that area for at least six months in order to make a significant conservation impact for science. And, and I disagree with that, but I respectfully disagreed. I was like, I think we can travel and bring funds to the area and just redistribute it. Even if it's not like it's parachute science, because you're going in, not expecting to help or, you know, bring in these ideas, science, the way we want to do it. You're going in with your money. You're seeing something cool, seeing biology at work and at play. And then that money goes into the local economy. It just has to be done right. And it has to be done well. And that's hard to find. I know you work for the wild source and they are doing an amazing job of doing that, especially in countries in Africa. I love your disruptive, um, disruptive empowerment empowerment model. Yeah, Uh, Bill Key coined that. (laughs) That's like his term. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So that that model basically, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm new to all this from your end, but the model is that you empower guides, local guides to essentially start their own mini businesses through um, the safari. So instead of a guide being, you know, working for a big company that is run by white Westerners and most of the funds go to the CEOs, overhead staff and the guide gets hmm, just the remains the the local guy gets just the scraps your model is that the guide is the most important part of the safari and they know the local knowledge and culture and wildlife of course but you treat them with respect and dignity and you pay them well and you allow you give them the resources and infrastructure to be able to get them going on their own. So it's not super difficult for them to get more work. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, that that was was spot on. That was, and I've had so many conversations with Bill about this and, and anyone can go listen to that podcast as well, where I sat down and we dive really deep into this. It was actually my first episode of the Rewildology podcast because Bill is my mentor and I was very nervous. So (laughs) I was like, if anybody will give me slack, it'll be Bill. So uh, but it's a really great episode. It was, we, yeah. We, 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 yeah, we went so deep into that. And and he is also what really was a like a catalyst of, of my idea on this is because, you know, when he got into this field um, and when he started doing, you know, just some safaris here or there, just more out of like it was fun and bringing people over paid for his trip, he started to see that the funds weren't evenly distributed and like the guides weren't getting compensated fairly when it was them that was the whole reason that the trip was amazing. Right. And so he was like, you know, F this. And so that, that was one of the big reasons that the wild source exists and the guides that are hired and work for the wild source are some of the best paid in the industry and yeah, I mean, Bill's like, my goal is if he's like, I don't want to own anything in the end. Like I want this to be theirs and they have like an inheritable business that they can then pass down through generations in their family and, you know, bringing on women biologists. Cause we actually have biologists at our camps and some really cool things to come on that, which I will tell you offline, which will eventually be public, but I'll tell you more offline. Oh. Um, but yeah, we have one of the first women trained biologists at our camp that doesn't exist like that that doesn't exist and she's a local African woman who's a biologist who's going out there and she's freaking great she is so good 
which wow. thank God, because I'm like, she's going to be my girl for these <laughs> projects we have coming up. <laughs> we're going to bond. We're going to be. Tight. Yeah, we're going to bond hard. So, but when, when I got to know him and I got to see him, so we bonded over big cats. Like that's like our thing. Yeah. And to see that he had the exact same solution and that he was already like 20 years ahead of me in yeah. making this happen. That's when I was like, I'm not letting you go. So that's, that's a big tip for people too. If you find somebody who is mentor level, do not let them go. <laughs> I don't care what you need to do. Even if you like call them every three months or whatever. So I met him in 2015 when I first moved to Denver and then officially last August, all the right things had to come in play where I'm officially working with him as the director of conservation. And I did a lot of my master's research through uh, the wild source and everything. So that is where all those connections happen. It just, yeah. it, it had to boil for about six years <laughs> and then, and then that came, but yeah, yeah. So that that's, yeah, disruptive empowerment. That's his term. And so he's a trained wildlife biologist as well. So like, that's like the whole thing. It's like wildlife biologist plan safaris and, and that kind of stuff. And then we're branching into some new markets now that the pandemic has exploded everything and traveling mm -hmm. to Africa isn't that easy. Yeah. I mean, it's getting easier, thankfully, but in the past two hard years have been hard, which has been devastating for local communities. I definitely do not want to just pass over that, but right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, it sucks like to be able to, to say like, Oh, Omicron is, you know, we planned these trips back in November or whatever. And then Omicron is canceling them and I'm losing money, but yeah, local economies who rely on tourism, especially ecotourism are suffering so bad. So bad. So bad. So bad. I mean, there's a lot of places around the world where that is the main form. And <laughs> I mean, without tourism, there's no way the Serengeti would be there. So I would really love to hear the person you had on's argument because I would find that really fascinating because I would also love to hear their argument on how these incredible places would still be here if it wasn't for tourism. There's no way the great wildebeest migration will still be here. There's no way the Serengeti, the yeah. Mara would still be here. There wasn't millions of dollars in tourism coming in just because of that area is there and how many thousands upon thousands and thousands of people are employed because of tourism to that area. So um, I think, yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. I respect this person a lot. And so I maybe, maybe she was talking specifically about like, like research. Not, oh, well, oh yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Like <laughs> I might've misquoted. Yeah. No, because no, no, no. like, cause researchers coming in and saying, you know, Hey, we're from whatever country and that's fine. Like you can go research, mm -hmm. but it also like leads to these ethical dilemmas of, well, do you really know the culture the best? Do you really know the wildlife the best? Just because we've had it in our brains that I'm getting into all these ethical things, but like, this is, this is the sliding scale. It's, it's so interesting to discuss. I'm not saying one way is right or wrong or whatever, but we we've had it in our brains that you can be a Jane Goodall. You can go and, yes. and, um, and, and do wildlife research in the in Gumby forest and work with chimpanzees or work with orangutans or work with big cats. And it's so accessible and easy and you can do it and you can, but you also, I think as, as we become more conservationists who are respecting wildlife and respecting the animals and the planet, you also learn to respect humans that are there. And you realize when you step into a space that's not 
your culture and your zone of, of knowledge, it takes a lot of humility, which Americans don't have a lot of humility, but it takes a lot of humility to step back and be like, okay, I'm going to delegate. I am not the smartest person here. I want to think I am because I have degrees or yada, yada, but you might not be. And so partnering with locals is essential. And I said that before, and I say it again, like you must, must have their, their approval, their partnership. And yeah, I was going to say something else, but that's, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just keep, I'll just keep rambling. So it's so important. It's so important. Yeah. And I think, well, I, I think the biggest wins and one of the reasons why I decided to go more of this people route versus, you know, strict field work stuff is Mm -hmm. I want it to be where somebody in any place of the world can be the person who's doing the research. I don't, I want to come, I want to see the day where the publishing, you know, when you go into a peer reviewed paper, the person, the first name on a paper matches the area that they studied. Right. Yes. That is what I want. And I have no idea how we get to that point. I mean, I absolutely love when I meet people through my podcast and they're just talking about, you know, how much they've been able to share their wisdom and their knowledge from like a scientific standpoint to like children. And now they see them and the being the first woman biologist in their town studying. Like, I mean, uh, one of my recent guests, she was talking about that. She's like, I met her when she was 15. Now she's the first biologist in this little town. And like, I've watched her grow and like, that's powerful because that's the way it should be. Like you shouldn't be going, at least this is the way I view it. You shouldn't have to go across the world and have a guide that looks like you. If you are in a place where you're going to a completely different culture, then I want to, I don't, I, I know this is so utopia, no. <laughs> but that's, that's the way, that's the way I want it to be. Like, so that every, every single person feels empowered that they can really just take hold of their nature, of their wildlife, of their economy and, and have their own tourism companies where us, like, you know, us tour operators, which is essentially, I'm a tour operator. You're becoming a tour operator where we just partner with local groups. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's already what we do, but Mm -hmm. you just have a local guide. Mm -hmm. And then if you and I would go on a trip, we would be the accompaniment. We would not Mm -hmm. be the center of attention. Exactly. Like it's all about this local guide. I don't know. You, I don't know how the best to find a tiger and pinch national, you know, tiger reserve, pinch national, you know, whatever it is. Like, I'm not the best to do that. Nope. Let's, we need to partner with an amazing local guide that can do that. And so that's, that's how I view the world and not, there's so many tour operators that are not on that level yet. And so many yeah. eco tour operators that are not mm-hmm. on that level. Like the, that's the term that, I think it's been greenwashed to mm-hmm. the end of the earth. Like mm-hmm. anyone can claim to be an eco tour because yeah. they go outside, you know, like we go to Costa Rica. We're an eco tour company. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Define that for me, please. Yes, let's get you know? a little bit more granular and see where your <laughs> money is actually going. See who you're actually mm-hmm. supporting, what kind of ethics you hold to. And exactly. um, then let's reassess because 
I totally agree. And that's the science aspect too. I think you said uh, you want the name of the person to match the area where they research and are from potentially. Is that what you mean? Or the, the name of the individual on the research paper, you want it to match with where they researched? Uh, either way, that's, I feel like this is the same coin. Meaning like, I not all the research should be coming from, you know, these like Western universities. Like, yeah, I really yeah. hope that there comes a day that people, you know, local people, wherever that is in the world, like everybody's local to somewhere where the, the economy has changed enough where enough people can get like some sort of second degrees, you know, you know, go get some sort of second education where they are the ones doing the research on their wildlife and their nature that it's not all these yeah. people coming in from other places to, and just, just like you said, like parachuting in and doing all the research. And again, we're not there yet. And I don't want this to sound like I'm demonizing anybody for doing that. Like yeah. I know some of my closest friends, like they're studying in other countries, but the beautiful part of it is like, I feel like our generation is super cognizant of this. And they don't do anything without local help or knowledge or respect or, or anything. It's like their knowledge is just as powerful, if not more than my quote unquote trained knowledge that I have. So yeah. I really do feel like conservation is changing as our generation gets in more like, like places of decision and mm -hmm. power and starting our own organizations and, and getting into influential stuff that that is where conservation is going. Yep. And then the next level is if we don't have to go to these places at all, we can just be visitors and experience the place, but all the research is coming from the people in the areas. Yes. So that's my hope yeah. sometime in my lifetime where that's, that's the, the trend rather than, you know, the exception. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is we have to work towards making the, the steps better. Like, you know, the, the civil rights movement, uh, was a step in the right direction. This is another mm -hmm. step in the right direction as society progresses and gets better. And as we know, money is an infinite resource. Like we can, we had, there is money in the world that we just have to kind of redirect and reroute to help make these utopian possibly dreams are, are more of a reality and it is possible and it is doable. Yeah. It just takes passionate people to do it. And yeah. Like one of the ways that I plan on addressing this myself is, and I'm sure, and you sounds like you are doing something very similar is putting together special trips that are based on people doing incredible research in these areas yep. or doing amazing things. Like you said, partnering with nonprofits. And one of the things that I want to do has been a dream of mine that now that I've finally working for the wild source, will be able to come to fruition is having a whole conservation travel series where a, a lot of Love guests it. actually on my podcast, I've had people from all over the world on like partnering with them and their research or maybe someone they know and then the only way to have access to this person is by joining one of these trips. And it'll be one of the most impactful things of your life. And then you get to meet this person. They get to be on it. And we fund their research. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Win, 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 win. Like most unbelievable experience of somebody's life, like coloring a giraffe, like uh -huh. connections to do that. Like, uh -huh. And then the people that we would bring would fund that whole experience. And then just imagine 
coloring a giraffe. Like, yeah. come on. You get to participate in that. Like I would, exactly. I, I would pay for that. I want to do exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. And I want to help support conservation research. Like I want to have that experience and I want to help support conservation research. So yes, there is a demographic of people who's, who are willing to pay to get the unique experience, but also know that they're giving back to really ethical adventures, conservation, local population, like all of the things. And that it can happen. It can happen. We just gotta, we just gotta um, let them know that it exists. Absolutely. And also too, because it's also on the other side of it, when we are going back to the very beginning of the conversation with exploitation and yeah. how there's absolutely no money, there's like there is money in research, but it's usually very particular and there's a whole bunch of things you have to jump through a lot mm -hmm. of the time. But if somebody who's super passionate about something that's answering a really important question that might not have funding, these private organizations could be the lifeline for their research. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then they are then, and, and depending on the kind of business that that tour operator can bring, they might double what their funds need to be, you know, depending on whatever model they have set up. So yeah, it's like it completely removes that whole issue out when these trips are ran in a really, really well way when there's not a pandemic. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and so I totally agree. I love everything you're saying. I also think Oh, one thing we didn't talk about is going back to why this is such a problem for conservation in the first place. Why is, why is conservation oh gosh, so yes, underfunded? This. Well, it's just, I mean, like kind of going back to the root, like we do not have in a capitalistic society that we live in, we do not have a tangible product that conservation offers. Yes, like, you're right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a tree is worth more dead than alive. What? That's a problem. That's a huge issue. Mm -hmm. What what motivation is there to protect our land if it's it saves us money by chopping it down and putting grass in and building houses like that that's better for the current model and the current industry that we're all working in and swimming in which is capitalism and not that I don't think it's going to change in our lifetime but I think we can use the for profit model to redirect funds to help conservation because. Uh, right now, conservation has no, like, it's only funding and grant money that gives money to conservation. Those are the two main sources. Yeah, yeah, you can have government grants and, and government aid and things like that. But that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Aside from yeah. ecotourism. And if people knew how effective ecotourism could be as a means to really preserve and protect wild areas, I think it, it's a, it's worth exploring and capitalizing on a bit more um, because it has the potential to do awesome things, but it also has the potential to be really dangerous um, if you're doing it wrong. That's tricky. Right. Right. And I think it just is going to take more of us in the field being educated on how to take advantage of a capitalist just way of doing things and we're not trained in that. Like, that's yeah. the thing. We aren't trained on how to use our skills in this way. Because just like you said, it's a very consumptive consumerism base right now. So, like, how do we use that to our advantage when our goal is to reduce consumption? So, how do we do that? And so, <laughs> 
Yeah, I just think it's going to take a lot of us getting really creative and really creative partnerships with people who might know better ways or getting, you know, partnering with a for-profit that, I don't know, they sell something, shoes, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know, some, mm-hmm. some business that does have some sort of ethos there and, and finding a way to partner with them in some way, shape, or form, like to help run our nonprofits or, or whatever it might be. So I think, yeah, it's just going to take a lot of thinking outside the box yep. and having conversations like when you and I sit down and like just brainstorm for a while and getting uh. a lot of us together and just like, okay, this is the problem. Let's try to get some different people around the table. Right. And what is their experience in here? Getting right. some really good business-minded people. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think? Or getting some other people that are really good in leadership positions. You know what I mean? Just a diversity of people. It doesn't have to just be us that's in a, the field. We need new idea. ideas. Like a think tank kind of. Um, yeah. Or I've been actually thinking about that a lot. Tell me more. Of putting together like a mastermind of some sort. Like a, like a conservation discussion on finding solutions through ethical conservation travel? Um, that's Specifically big, well, travel yeah. or? More like bigger picture. Okay. But yeah, something like that. Like getting just some creative people around the table that all have really different skill sets. And then seeing what amazing things can come out of that. I really haven't de- like developed this idea further than that, yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like that's needed because my brain only knows so much. Right, right, exactly. And so I've much- never ran a like a one billion dollar company before. I've never successfully done X, Y, or Z. But there's many people who have. Yes, and and to your point where you were saying earlier, like you know, we weren't trained to do this type of thing. So as scientists. Yeah, we weren't trained to run businesses and things like that. But I will say, in this day and age, it's pretty amazing because we can learn. If you are motivated enough, you can learn anything on the internet. If you have internet access anything, and you're motivated <laughs> enough, you can learn how to run a business. You can learn how to make a business plan. You can learn how to start a nonprofit. You can freaking do it. And um, But it does help to have that mindset of like, okay, I'm not going to play the victim mentality. I really want to do this. I really want to make the world a better place. So I'm going to grit and grit through it and do these things. I'm going to learn how to start a business. I'm going to make the connections necessary. I'm going to find out if I can't figure something out, I'm going to find the person who can, or, you know, just keep networking and get those connections until we can make something happen. So like, I, I will say, like, I love the idea of having a, a nonprofit that helps, you know, especially oppressed and like historically marginalized groups. Like that is oh my God, yes. like, don't, you know, white supremacy is real. Like we can talk on that a different, but, but, but to get a job in wildlife biology or to start a business or to use your creative aspirations, you can do it. Like there's ways that are out there. Um, it just takes like this, <laughs> this mindset shift almost. Right. And also too, I think another big disconnect that I've come to find in this field. And I, I really started to feel it when, uh, trying to build my podcast. Mm-hmm. is it is so hard to connect and find other people. It really is in the sense of like, 
Like how how do people even find my podcast or like your oh, podcast yeah. or like yeah. of of just like where where do I even start? Where do I even start to learn about these sort of things? Uh, who can I connect with? Because there isn't like a at least not that I found. Someone can correct me of just like more of a central place for all of us to get together. For like example, you know, there's like amazing like women business owner owner networks there's yeah. really amazing journalist networks there's really amazing all this stuff but I just don't feel like we really have anything like that I have that heard of, of something I have heard of something but I haven't explored it um it's conservation networking or conservation connection something along those oh, lines I'll, I'll look that up. uh I, I could find them maybe on Instagram but I was talking with the person who started that for a, a tiny bit and then probably for this exact reason that we're talking about right now yeah. <laughs> well, I mean yeah that's the thing is like when you're starting your own thing you have so many things to do that joining a networking thing if it doesn't provide like immediate tangible <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, uh-huh. a benefit it's like okay I'm gonna put that on my list of things to look into that I'll never get to. Oh. Right. But it's there. I wrote it down. <laughs> but it's there. In like three different places. It's written yes. down. <laughs> but we'll look into that. <laughs> so yeah. So it's like, I'll, maybe we can add it in the show notes afterward. Um, I'll look it yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because anything, any like resource like that, I think would be super helpful. Because there's been some amazing, like zoo. Because you know, uh-huh. I worked in zoos for a long time. There's some amazing supportive organizations that have developed in the zoo network which I absolutely love and yeah and and so I don't know what I I don't know what for us you know just like as general conservation which also includes like the zoo world too but like you know just the conservation community like how can we come together more and explore these ideas more and come to solutions together and then also bring some other people with different experience to see what they might say about a certain issue because we've never looked at it that way because we don't have their same experience. Yeah. Yeah. I a lot of these things a lot. Yeah. That's, <laughs> those are very good, deep, interesting questions. I'm in the mentality currently of like, you know, I, I live in Chattanooga and it's a hub for innovation and uh, entrepreneurship, which is really great. Uh, there's a lot of local resources that I can tap into, thankfully. And so it's it's kind of a matter of I start an email conversation or, or you know, build a relationship with someone and they connect me to someone and then they connect me to someone. And, and over time, it becomes this beautiful sprawling network of if I need help with accounting, I know who to go to. If I need help with bylaws or whatever I know how to go who to go to but I've never considered like having it all in one place especially just specifically for conservation is that what you're talking about like just the 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 entrepreneurial side of things help with that or like or you're just talking conservation in general I think there's space for both of those yeah (laughs) I think it's probably more of what you need at the time because not everybody needs entrepreneurial advice yeah you know yeah but Maybe somebody is a researcher that is doing, that's stuck in a project somewhere in in some way, shape or form and happens to be in like a think tank or a mastermind with other people who've done research somewhere else and be like, oh, have you thought about it this way? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like a research. And then that could be a light bulb for somebody. Mm -hmm. I know I've had those with some people where I'm like, genius. 
Yes. I, that didn't even come close to what I was thinking. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that, and having that mentality of being open and responsive mm-hmm. to any ideas and any people that, that come through your way. Like we don't exist in a vacuum. We need each right. other. <laughs> Networking and, and partnerships are so important. Uh, I am <laughs> such a fan of partnerships because not, I can't, I can't, you can't do all the goals that you want to do all by yourself. Not even um, close. Yeah. We we're all on this beautiful earth. We're trying to make it better. Let's work together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I think every single time we've talked, you know, I'm just like spewing things to you. I'm like, so there's this coming up. What do you think about this uh-huh. idea? And you're uh-huh. like, Oh my gosh, it's just, thank you. And that's the exact same way I want to be with everybody. Like, if I've made a connection or have some sort of resource, please let yes. me share it. Yes. I don't want to keep it. What what good is it me just holding on to it myself? Yes. No good. It's like sharing. Reach your goals. <laughs> yeah. It's like redistributing the wealth, sharing the wealth. Whatever mm-hmm. I have that I can share with others, I would like to share it. Yeah, exactly. Because I've been I've been given so much information and help from others free of charge. So like yeah. I'm not going to keep it to myself. I get that. I did have a question. I really go I really want to go back to the exploitation thing really fast. Yes. Let's so, talk about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so funny. I'm so glad that we're, we had this interview scheduled because one of my, my most recent interview, she actually brought up exploitation and conservation. And she's like, have you had anybody on yet? I'm like, actually <laughs> I am it's scheduled on my calendar right now. So I, I really do want to explore this a little bit more from a solutions standpoint. So since you've like looked into this so much and have talked to so many incredible people, what are some of the ways that maybe leadership or even people who are going into their career, how should we look at this to protect ourselves and then also to empower maybe our team? Like what are some actionable solutions in your eyes that you've found. Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind is if you say as a early career conservationist, if you can afford to travel, that's great. Go for it. Travel and experience other places and support local communities and support local wildlife. And you can add it to a resume, but I would be also aware if you go into an interview and just say, Hey, I had this privilege to travel, but don't hire me preferentially because I could afford this. That's like a bottom-up solution of like, just just make it aware, just put it out there possibly um, if the ethics concerns you any at all. Then from the employee standpoint, standpoint, that's important too. So if you're an employee who is trying to hire someone, don't just look at their wide, oh, I've traveled across the country and I've done all these amazing things and get sucked into that because that means that they have inherent privilege and the ability to travel. So if you want to truly hire a diverse socioeconomic background and perspectives of people, consider their history, consider their life, consider what obstacles they've had to overcome, what barriers that were presented to them and see how they overcame those barriers and pursued their passion for conservation regardless, not just getting sucked into the travel everywhere. So that's, those are two solutions. As far as money solutions, it, it really takes emphasizing 
the nonprofits that are kind of doing it right or the research institutions or organizations that are have a good model for paying um, well and supporting them, sharing them, uh, sharing their job postings or sharing their paid internships, sharing their experiences around. I don't want to bash anyone because I think like there is room for growth. Like when, if an organization is like, oh, we should be paying better. Okay, we're going to really look into that and dive in and see how we can make those changes. So we we support and lift up the organizations that are doing a really good job with that. And there was another piece I was going to talk about too, and I forgot. Yeah. What do you think of that? Because I, I had another thought and it might circle yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll add to that while, while you yeah. think. Because <laughs> I have a really good example of this too. And I think that maybe something that everyone should consider is what you're asking for when you're asking for volunteers. And mm-hmm. meaning in the sense of, is this thing that you're asking for, should it be paid for? And if it should be paid for, how can you possibly compensate them for that? And the reason why I bring that up, and I don't want to say that this is wrong. I mean, there are really people that are like, I can't afford to donate, so I want to give my time, which mm-hmm. is also very valuable. Time is the most valuable currency we have, the most valuable currency we have. For example, for my podcast, I officially hired somebody to edit my audio. And because I finally have a stable enough job, because I've kind of gone through a lot of just job insecurity with the pandemic and launching my podcast. And so I did everything myself. The whole entire podcast is myself. And I finally got to a point where like, okay, something needs to happen if I want this to grow. And I've just put a call out. I was like... I, I, does anybody know of an audio engineer that would be able to come on and just help me? And you want to know something so funny? Everyone was like, I know somebody, but they wouldn't be able to do it unpaid. Yeah. And I'm like, I would never consider doing this unless I could pay them. I would never, because to me, that's exploitation. I mean, like asking an audio engineer to edit my podcast for free? Are you serious? No, that is a really valuable skill. And so I didn't even consider it until I felt financially comfortable enough to ask somebody to please um, edit my my episodes. And so I feel like that that's just like another great example. Like I would never, I, either I'm doing it myself or I'm paying somebody to do it for me. And again, I mean, hopefully once the podcast, I I find some way for it to make money because right now it doesn't, it's all just coming out of my pocket that I will be able to pay even more because that's, that's the actual goal here is pretty much just to make money just to give it away. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just like you. I'm like, it's pretty much, I want to make a lot of money so I can control where it goes Yeah, and, and who's getting the benefit of that. Right. that that's my actual goal. I don't need much money. I live in a 700 square foot apartment. Like I'm fine. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I feel like that's the example that came to mind. Everyone's like, Oh yeah, I know somebody, but they're not going to do it for free. And I'm just like, don't worry about it. It's not going to be for free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. 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 So take like put putting that in a, a little bit of a different context. So say there's a, a nonprofit, I'm just going to pick a country, Tanzania. 
I don't know any nonprofits in Tanzania personally, so it seems like a safe <laughs> example. <laughs> and they run a bird banding lab and they run, uh, you know, crocodile research and they run cheetah research or something like that. So if you have a group of motivated individuals who wants to pay to come out and get this really neat experience and volunteer and put their their grit and their drive and their passion to see these projects in action. That's one thing they're, they're doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing that because they want that experience and the organization really does need probably the benefit, the financial kickback. If you know, they're paying to volunteer, paying a small fee to stay on the property. And it seems like it's fine. The expectations are set up. It's not overcharging yada, yada. What I would caution is if that volunteer person feels like they're working a job and that that's a fine line. So if they feel like every morning they have to get up and open the bird banding mist nets and work from 6 a.m. to, you know, 3 p.m. without a break and they have no autonomy and they have no flexibility and all these things like add up, they have to be there. They have to be there for a set amount of time. They have a certain project to do. They have a task that's being done. That's a job. That's. It's like, no, that you need to pay someone for this work. So there's there's this fine line between what's, what, and it, it really goes back to the expectations of both the volunteer, what they're getting out of it. And if they're getting a training, apprenticeship, learning, that's not exploitative. But then I would also caution, again, that they use those things on their resume with a grain of salt because we don't want to make conservation more privileged than it already is in the industry. But yeah, so, and then the, the organizations, the nonprofits, their models, again, are kind of, because they're not businesses, they're protecting land, they're doing valuable conservation work. If, a lot of cases, if they didn't have these people paying to stay, those lands would not get protected. Those species would not be protected. And it's not an ideal model, but that's the model that we're going on right now. Like that's a lot model that a lot of organizations are basing off of right now, that they, they're reliant on these volunteers. And sometimes they call them interns because of the terminology used. Like if you get school credit, I want to abolish unpaid internships, but it's like a different, it's like a different segue kind of, it's a, it's a weird term and it shouldn't really be used, but it is in certain um, countries in order to get the school credit that you need to. So that's why they're called interns. Anyway, regardless, a person would pay for that experience. A person would pay for the training and the staff and the ground does a lot of valuable work to make sure that that individual is taken care of and gets the training they need and gets a cool biological experience. Yet, yet there's still that ethical dilemma. If the organization is all about funds and the money goes not back to conservation, not back to locals, not back to, just goes back to like a rich CEO's pocket or something like that, that's a red flag. So there's, there's all sorts of intricacies to consider. It's not, it's not black and white. So I, I wrote down, you know, volunteer versus intern, just knowing the differences that, knowing your expectations going in knowing that the organization is reliable and where their money is going. And also just being aware and considerate of the fact that not everyone can travel for these experiences. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. So yeah, those are my thoughts. That was really good. 
Yeah, because I, I felt, you know, a lot of those things too, just trying to get in my foot in the door. Like I wasn't able to do a lot of things that would have been required for me to get into my career earlier simply because I had to pay. I've been on my own since I was 18, you know, like I had to work multiple jobs. Like, yeah, my parents did everything they could, but they didn't also have enough money to support me at the exact same time, you know, while I was going off into adulthood. And so I'm grateful for that experience because I mean, I'm a hard woman, (laughs) like like I'm a hard independent woman. Um, I'm married because I want to be, not because I have to be, um, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It just, and it, I just, I just look and it's like, if my path was as hard as it was and I'm white, I can't imagine for somebody who's not white and Mm -hmm. them trying to get into this field. Which is why I'm just so excited that now there's really starting to be this movement to change that. Yeah. Because it shouldn't, if we all look the same at the table, no. Why? No. Like, what what creative ideas are going to come out of that? Maybe some, but not unless all stakeholders are at a table, then like how how is any actual informed decision going to be made? We're destroying yeah. that table and we need to, we yeah. need to make a new table. We need, <laughs> we need to make a party table. Oh, the other thing I did want to say is um, scholarships, subsidies. Mm. So there are some really great organizations that will pay for BIPOC individuals to get hands-on experience. Part of the trips I'm trying to lead are, we'll have a portion that we'll donate back to have people get in the field and experiencing biology in a way that maybe they don't have access to through their means. So scholarships, subsidies, here's an example too. There's, if someone has scientific integrity and they want to do science and they want to research conservation, but they don't have, let's say you're in, uh, I was talking to someone and this is an actual example, Algeria. They were in Algeria. There's a young man in Algeria who wanted to study conservation and resources just aren't there. So having a need-based and merit-based and passion-fueled application process where he can get a subsidy to go work with a marine biologist for a week, that's awesome. And then they, and then he can get his name on a paper. We got to destroy that ivory tower system where to get your name on a paper, it takes going through all these hoops and working under the person who has the most publications. We need to make it more accessible. We need to make peer-reviewed research more accessible for people because anyone can be a scientist. And it's not as hard as it seems to get your name on a peer-reviewed paper. You just have to kind of, well, it is hard. Let me say that. It is hard. We're. I know that there are organizations and groups and people trying to make it easier. Uh, so the Shackleton Research Trust is the, the group I'm talking about that's trying to bridge that gap and bring bring more subsidies to allow individuals to contribute to science, participate in the scientific endeavor, and then get their name on papers so that they can pursue a, a research role in the future back in their home country and bring... That's exactly what I was just talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like my utopian view, someone's like, yeah, this is a problem. Let's yes. actually make a solution. Oh, yes. Amazing. Yes. 
we need more solutions out there. Oh my god. And there are people doing it. There and and I want to support and lift them up and work with all of them because I just am so inspired by them. So however we can redistribute wealth, redistribute knowledge, bring equity and justice to the field of conservation and to all to make the world a better, like our world is so diverse. Let's celebrate the diversity in all forms. And that includes in our industry. It's just rough. <laughs> that was amazing. I think that might be the perfect way to end this unless you had something else that you wanted to chat on. Oh gosh, it's not easy. I will just say it's not easy. There, there are goals and dreams and hopes. Every night, I personally go to bed thinking about all of the ways we can help. But I also don't want to exist in this like white savior mentality. Like that's not cool either. It, so putting your foot out there, putting your like ideas for the world to see, like even in this podcast or putting it on social media, it's really scary. It's so scary. <laughs> it's it's so like scary. <laughs> way scarier than I ever thought it would be. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I have all these great ideas. Like, let's just talk about it. And when you go to like post, you're like, what are people going to say? What if someone says this? What if someone says that? So I guess I'm saying that just because I'm finally getting to a place, not quite there, like 100%, but I'm, I'm almost there where I like, I don't want to care what people think about me because I know my heart and my intent is good, but yet it can be so distorted and, and manipulated on social media or through, like, if you don't know someone really, like, don't judge them, <laughs> you know? Like that's why I'm that's why I love the podcast form, those long form discussions. And you really get to see the heart of a person come out in a way that's special and enlightening and fresh and breaks through the cancel culture or breaks through just like the black and white mentality that like anytime you do X, it's bad, or anytime you don't recycle your bottle, it's you're horrible. Like there's more nuance in the world. We gotta, so, yeah. we gotta support each other. We gotta love each other and work together to do yeah. that. To find and a solution. And that's why I love what how I've set up my podcast is. I want all ideas on because one, we need to hear what other people's solutions are, and if there is somebody that has an opposite view, then need to listen to why. I've had some guests on where I didn't agree with what they said. And sometimes I get people that reach out, they're like, huh, you know, or they might, well, why did you allow that person to say that? And I'm like, you missed the point. There's a reason why they're on the podcast. We all need to hear what each other is thinking because we're all coming at this with a conservation lens. And if that is their solution, then you probably should hear what they're talking about. And I've heard this on... I mean, so many different ways, you know, people who are super pro hunting, other people that are super anti hunting, people that are super this, super that. And they're all like, su- like very convicted in their way of doing conservation. And my point is none of them's wrong. Nobody's wrong. 
if somebody was 100% right, the all of our problems would be gone. But they're not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that means the more viewpoints we have out in the open, then the better. To hear with somebody who's on the opposite conservation aisle as you, whatever that means, you need to listen to that. And and from like an objective standpoint, and that's one thing that I really love about the platform that I've built is just talking to so many people about so many different things and really getting into their story and how that idea of conservation came to be. Because when you, when you go through the whole story with somebody, you understand why they got to where they are today. Yeah. The, the full picture, it's, it's a full picture. Instead of just going into an interview and be like, what is your viewpoint? What is your science? And then not having the full picture. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, yeah, just getting over the personal fear of somebody attacking me or one of my guests. Which I'm sure that'll happen more and more as the podcast gets bigger because you just, there's just a bigger pool of people, you know. But luckily I haven't dealt with too much of that yet. But it is definitely a thing. I mean, it's one of the scariest parts about doing this in the first place. I'm a conservation biologist. I'm not a podcast social media influencer. Right. I know. <laughs> so, like, what? Who am I to do this? And it's like, well, who am I to not do this? So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, I was, I actually, I did want to just ask, what was your master's work? Um, because you said it led you to doing the conservation travel that you're doing yeah. now. And so just briefly, what, what, what is that storyline that yeah. you started as conservation biologist interested in big cats, and now you're doing conservation travel to help people and habitats? Yeah, yeah. So I went through the Global Field Program, which I'm sure a lot of people listening has probably heard of by this point. So since I didn't get outside of the U.S. ever, I barely got outside of Ohio growing up, I found this master's program. Well, one, I was going to be a veterinarian, and I really was. I was going to be a zoological veterinarian. And I mean, I applied, I interviewed, I did everything. And then during my interview, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this, which (laughs) is like the worst and best time to figure that out. No. That you don't want to be a vet is your senior year as you're sitting in an interview chair oh, no. for vet school. So yeah, fate took over there. Wow. And But I knew I wanted to do some sort of post-secondary. I was working at the Columbus Zoo at the time. And so the uh, GFP is based out of Miami University, which is in Ohio. Okay. Yeah. Miami University of Oxford. Uh, and I found this program and I was like, oh my God, it is all online and I get to go on three international trips to learn conservation on the ground. Is this real life? And I found the program and then, I don't know, like the deadline was like 10 days later or something. So I just made like a a whim and I went for it and I applied and I got in. And this is the first time that I was ever exposed to... So first I started looking at the big cat trade in the United States, which is a terrible topic, which actually is going to be on my podcast here really soon, which is funny. But that is where I started. And I was like, I can't, this is, I can't do this. It's so depressing. I just can't, I need to find something else. And that is getting into big cat literature and, and from like a conservation solution standpoint, because you know, that, that was the whole reason why I did all of this. Like, what's the actual solution here? And the one of the strongest tools that I found was conservation travel for mitigating human wildlife conflict. 
and especially with big cats, who are some of the most conflict-ridden species there are on the planet. And so I was like, oh my God, I need to look more into this and start going and researching this. And that is also around the same time that I met Bill. And because my um, boyfriend, he got a position in Denver and it was very fast. Like we had like a two week notice. And so I, I didn't have a job yet. When we moved here, we moved from Dallas. I was at the Dallas Zoo. And, um, and I found Bill just researching online and I'm like, oh my God, you have all of my same ethos. At this point, I was already in my master's, so I'd already started to find the power. You know, I was starting to do some research about conservation travel and big cats. And then I found him and I'm like, oh my God, this is the solution. And <laughs> so I did some like big cat empathy research projects, like interviewing his uh, African safari participants and stuff, which was really cool. And now we're doing something even on a significantly bigger scale soon, which I'll tell you about that stuff. I'll tell you about it. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. So that, so that's how really that came to be. And then I was like, I just freaking like just blinders on. This is the path I'm going down. I have no idea how to get into the field. I have the only international travel I have is through my master's work. And then that's when I found NADHAB and I applied a million times until mm-hmm. I got in. Okay. And then I, I ended up traveling a lot more with them. So, so, yeah, so that's, that's the journey. So you essentially kind of got to this place of like, if I really want to help conservation and big cats, it's going to be through this model, this frame of, mm-hmm. of work, this, this travel aspect. That's the most, that's the best way we can help conservation. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was like, okay. I could spend all of my resources, you know, as a zoological veterinarian, which <laughs> this is so funny. When I told my dad that I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be a veterinarian anymore. He's like, yeah, I don't see you putting shots in tiger's asses. Like, <laughs> that's literally <laughs> what he said. He's like, yeah, I knew you were going to come to this realization, but oh, you you came to it on your own. So <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was really, really funny. But yeah, yes, because I was like, okay, so I could use... I could go out into the field and be with these big cats all the time, but there's already so many people doing that. There's already so much good research out there. There really isn't that much more research that really can be done, honestly. So is that the best way for me to spend my finite life on this planet is to just be with the cats, which is really what I want to do, or should I spend my time in what I feel and what I see as a much bigger impact. So that is why I got into conservation travel. And I just am so grateful now that I never stopped because my past decade of work, I feel has finally come to a head. Like I did, I finally realized it a couple months ago. I just turned 30 and I was like, wow, everything I've done since I turned like 20 has finally come to fruition. Like, like right now. I have the title that I want. I'm working with my mentor. I have this incredible pro like platform that I've built. All of which are super scary things that I just did anyway. So, so yeah, I mean, and I was given, I was born or whatever, whatever somebody believes. I have the personality that I have. I am a people person. So, and not many scientists are which is totally fine. So like, let's all work in our lanes. Like 
I, you're really good at this. I'm really good at this. Let's mm -hmm. partner together. Mm -hmm. Like, and both and lift everybody up in the process. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's how I viewed it. I'm like, yes, I could be a fantastic, amazing scientist in the field, but is that the best way to spend my life? And going through and doing all these things and exploring these different paths, I was like, no, that's not where I should put my life. Yeah. My life is doing this. And yeah, we'll see if I say the same thing when I'm 40. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> but that, that's where I'm at now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what we have to remember. This is where I am now. And this is a lifetime progression of learning and growing. But the what I think the last three or four minutes of what you just said were like, I could have said the same thing. Like the, my twenties were for figuring it out. And now I'm, I'm about to turn 34, even though I look like I'm 17. Um, yeah, <laughs> keep living that up, girl. You look great. <laughs> and you're a mom. Awesome. So like, yeah, you know, you're just like, I know what I'm like, this feels so good and so right. And all of this, the decade of the twenties was culminating in me figuring out what I'm doing now and how to have a purposeful life. Yeah. Love it. It took, we are twins. Yes, we are. <laughs> it took just not letting the fear stop me or you. And I think that's one of the, my biggest pieces of advice for anyone listening. If it's scary, that means it's outside of your comfort zone. And that probably means you should do it. Not everything, but if it Everything. feels right, and it's super scary, you should probably do it. <laughs> I mean, I've worked so much on my mentality and my spiritual like growth and stuff. Like the, there's a book called You Are a Badass, which I've read probably like five or six times. Do I agree with yeah, everything? No, I have not. I've not, I do not agree with everything, but it's still very useful to change. Like you are destined for awesome things. You are a badass. I've worked with a life coach. She helped me with my TED talk and getting over the fears of standing in front of people and, and saying these things and the potential that someone might not like it or someone might disagree. I've had really good conversations. I've had really bad conversations. I've had conversations with people agree on it with everything. I've had conversations where someone will respectfully disagree and we can find solutions together and, and grow and move forward and that's okay. Like this is, this is all a learning process. So it's all about growth and don't be stagnant. And yeah, now I feel like I'm just a, a mini life coach here to, for your audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. I feel like, yeah, this, there's been a lot of really great pointers out of this episode, which I was really hoping for. And I hope that for both of our audiences that there's a lot to take away and whatever it is that somebody needs right now. We all are different parts of our career, of our personal growth, of our personal development. But I will say that right now you have two women that have pursued what they felt is right. And are we anywhere close to where we want to be? No, we still have a lot of growth that we know we need to do. But we have at least taken the first big path, the first big step mm. in that right direction. Mm -hmm. And that's always the first step is the scariest step. Mm -hmm. 
and they get yeah. easier. They're getting easier. It's getting easier. Yeah, they're getting way easier as as my confidence builds mm-hmm. in myself and my abilities, mm-hmm. as I watch my platform grow, mm-hmm. as I get more positive feedback. Yeah. It's like, okay, I am doing what I should be. That's a beautiful thing too about social media. Sometimes even just one message where someone says, hey, your podcast inspired me. Hey, I shared it with someone else. Hey, these are really important stories. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for talking about this. No one talks about this. You know, like, I'm like, okay, that keeps me going. Yes. So that's, it's all very good. Brooke, I, I feel like we've tried to wrap up for a few times now and we just keep talking <laughs> and just keep going. And I, for the sake of our time and our, our listeners' time, <laughs> we'll, maybe we'll do another, yes. in a few months, we'll check in with each other and do another episode and see where we're at and talk about more that. of these things. Cause I could, I love that. I could talk forever. I really could. I'm sure that by that point we'll, with how busy you and I are every single day, we'll have a lot to talk about at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. even a few months from now, it'll be like, oh, yes. I'm doing this, which is totally different. And <laughs> now, yeah, <laughs> it'll yeah. be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Thanks. Well, awesome, Laura. Thanks, Thanks for, again. This has been amazing. Yes. Thank you for doing this dual interview and being willing to make this happen, make this a reality. I love it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And remember, Ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.